0: Sequence
1: start. Space nuts. 3, 2, 1. Space
0: nuts. Astronauts report it
1: feels good.
0: Hello again, and thank you for joining us on the podcast we call Space Nuts. My name's Andrew Dunkley, and my astronomer at large is Dr. Fred Watson. Hello, Fred.
1: Hi, Andrew. How are you going?
0: I am quite well, and you, sir?
1: Yeah, it's um, all right. Thanks. Yeah, yeah it's it's very a, tolerably here. well.
0: Thank you. Very windy here. We've had a a, a wet and windy week, which is uh, very good. We need the rain, but gee, we're getting some gusty winds. It hit the house so hard last night it woke me up, and it must have hit one of those little crevices in the bricks or something, and there was this whistle that wouldn't stop,
1: yeah, drove me right.
0: crazy. Um, but, uh, yeah, we we need the rain. Uh, just in time for the Royal Visit, which is less than a week away now. So we're very excited here um, with Harry and Megan coming to town. Of course, the rain's turned everything green and they're coming here for the drought. So... <laughs> it's going to be hard to prove but it, there definitely is a drought now Fred we're going to talk about the ice formations on Europa uh, one of the uh, moons of Jupiter this is a fantastically interesting place and some of these um, uh, well, I think one of the descriptions of the surface was like a hedgehog which is uh, just amazing and you can't see those kinds of formations on earth from what I understand and we may well have found the first exo moon something you and I talked about recently and we said it wouldn't be long before Before an exo-moon was found, well, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. There it is. And uh, we have a question from Paul in uh, in Canada, uh, Vancouver Island, to be more specific, about the big crunch. So we'll uh, try and explain that. But first, Fred, the ice formations of Europa. This is an intriguing world.
1: Uh, It it is, uh, yes, it's one of the most fascinating places in the solar system. It's also one of the places where people think there could be life lurking Mm -hmm. uh, because Europa has this uh, construction that we now know is common to several worlds out there in the depths of the solar system of a rocky object uh, which is overlain by a global ocean, a liquid water ocean on top of the rock, uh, that covers the whole the whole of the of the uh, of the moon the, the Jupiter 's moon, and then on top of that a layer of ice um, which is many kilometers thick. We don't really know the exact thickness, but it's thought to be many kilometers thick in order for the sort of thermodynamics to work. So that's all good and well. Um, Europa, we also know, is covered with sort of brownish cracks and the interpretation, which I'm sure you and I covered a few, uh, well, probably a couple of years ago, uh, about these, these brownish cracks, is that they are actually cracks in the ice through which sort of brine is leaking, the briny ocean water from underneath. And the effect of the cosmic, uh, the cosmic wind, or the the solar wind from the sun, and cosmic rays and other bombardment by subatomic particles it is what actually turns those those um, cracks brown because the 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 water itself changes its uh, structure when it's bombarded, and you get this brownish colour. Uh, that's uh, all you know, great stuff. But the new theory, <laughs> kind of uh, as you say, it. Um, it, it alters our view of what Europa might be like, because yes, you're quite right, it turns it into a cosmic hedgehog. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all about the possibility that Jupiter's, that this moon, Jupiter's moon, Europa, uh, it doesn't have a smooth surface, that its surface is likely to be effectively pitted. But what you've What the end product is, is gigantic, jagged spikes of ice, these vertical ice shards, uh, which um, are suggested as being up to 50 feet or 15 metres high. Um, Not not a great place to land a spacecraft.
0: Uh, No, not really. (laughs) It sounds like it could places resemble on Earth, I suppose uh, a glacial effect. That would be the closest we get to there, this. There is an,
1: yeah, there is an effect on Earth, and and this is what leads the scientists who have done this work uh, to, um, you know, to theorize about the this this idea. So um, it, it comes about uh, partly. Well, well, you know, a number a number of a number of um, things come together to, to to make this theory work. One of them is the orbit of Europa around Jupiter. Europa's orbit, Europa goes around Jupiter once in about three and a half days. It's fairly rapid uh, sort of progress around around the giant planet. Mm. Um, but it, it's also uh, pretty well aligned with Jupiter's equator, which is more or less aligned pretty well with the sun. Uh, and there is no, so there's no sort of seasonal changes on Europa. Um, that's to say the height of the sun above the horizon. Yes, it varies throughout the day, the European day, which is actually 3.5 days. I didn't mention that Europa always keeps its same face to Jupiter. And so that it, it, it revolves on its axis in the same length of time as it rotates around Jupiter. It's, it's a, a day and a month of 3.5 days. So that uh, all you see, you know, if you stood on uh, Europa's equator, you'd simply see the sun rise in the east. It will go directly overhead. And it would set uh, in the west, and it would do that day in, day out, uh, year in, year out. There would be no seasonal changes. So the sun's always going to be directly overhead on the equator. That'd be handy
0: for people who hate daylight saving. <laughs> Quite so. Yeah. <laughs> Let's not get into that one. Uh, <laughs> well, it's because... just started here, hasn't it? So all, all the arguments are starting to surface again.
1: Yeah, I'm sure they are. Yeah, it's one that comes around every year. Well, yeah. twice a year, doesn't it? The beginning and the end of daylight saving. We have um, so we, we we have this um, th- this situation where you've got um, a fair bit of the day. The sun is kind of beating down from almost directly overhead. Now there are places on the Earth where that happens, and one of them is a place beloved of astronomers. Uh, it's in the Northern Atacama Desert in Chile. Uh, and uh, this is uh, it's actually a place called Chaj- Chajnantor. I never know quite how to say it, Chajnantor, probably, in Chile. And it's uh, the reason why astronomers like it is because that's where ALMA is, the Atacama Large Millimeter Array. And ALMA's at a height of nearly 5,000 metres, so you're in a very rarefied atmosphere up there, and it is rarefied, I know because of bean, uh, you can hardly breathe. Uh, it's uh, So that... Um, is a situation where when you get ice and snow falling up there which they do um, you've got a similar situation you've got the sun coming down more or less overhead and what happens is the sun sort of burns little pits into the ice Ah. and then these pits basically develop because as, as they get deeper the the spikes of ice act as very highly reflective surfaces. So they've sort of almost focused the sun down to the bottom of these pits, and the pits just get deeper. Uh, So instead of a nice field of of ice, you've got this jagged terrain, um, and there there are actually photographs of it uh, up in Chile, uh, looking for all the world like, you know, well, like spikes of ice, because that's what they are. Um, And the suggestion is now that uh, conditions on europa are similar enough uh, to to this that perhaps that was would be what we would see with a uh, you know with a, a europa lander
0: and and they're certainly looking at europa for future missions because of the potential or the theory of
1: life on that the, particular... possibly life in the in the ocean underneath the ice that's right uh, but um, as to the best of my knowledge all the planned missions to Europa so far are orbiters they're not ones yeah. that will try and land so that of course is a, is a great uh, you know it's a great first step because you should be able to see these things at the kind of resolution that the orbiters would would provide images yeah, well, of Europe.
0: Given today's technology yes we can achieve great things it's, uh, yeah. it's extraordinary. Yeah. Uh, I, I would have thought that um, Europa would be significantly affected by by jupiter because it's it's a gas giant and i i would think that gravity and um you know other activity from that planet would have an
1: impact on the on the moon itself it, it does, that's right. So um, Jupiter's got an extraordinarily dense radiation belt, so that certainly plays a part with, with the environment of, of Europa. But, of course, the other thing is, uh, because it is close to Jupiter, it's got really strong tidal effects. That means one side of Europa is being pulled more than the other side. And what that does is it tends to distort the rocky core of, of Europa. Uh, and as it does that, that generates heat, and that heat is... Probably at least partly what keeps the ocean liquid that's underneath the ice, the internal heat of Europa. Uh, so yep, yeah, interesting place and no doubt um, you know somewhere where there, there will be future missions to tell us whether the, whether it is actually like a cosmic hedgehog. <laughs> and indeed maybe one day
0: whether or not there is life, uh, they did do a science fiction film about Europa called Europa Report. I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, no, but they, they landed on Europa and um, ultimately all got killed by a creature that lived oh, right. lived in the ocean beneath the surface. Uh, but I was a bit disappointed that all they could come up with
1: was a giant squid. But um, <laughs> who knows? I mean, if there who is knows? one. There, there, there is one final twist to this story, Andrew, that I meant to mention. Hmm. And that's the name of these ice formations. These spikes have a name and they're called penitentes. Oh. Um, it's a sort of Latin American word, but it's named after an Easter festival, a religious Easter festival, um, which is common throughout the Spanish-speaking world, where uh, the penitents actually wear pointed white hats. Um, This is a, you know, as, as, as a penance kind of thing. And so the penitentes are uh the 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 penitents uh in the festival and the, it's also the name given to these icy spikes okay as against the white
0: pointy hats that are worn in other parts of the world that we don't exactly to yes that's right Quite <laughs> yeah. right, so
1: that's mm. what i thought too
0: <laughs> yeah uh okay well um it's a fascinating world and there's so much to learn and hopefully in years to come we will uh, find out even more and eventually get down in there and have a look around in the ocean and find out if it's, uh, if it's got life. It's got squids. <laughs> Maybe squids. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson. Now, let's take a little break and find out more about our sponsor, Uh, so protect yourself online today, and find out more about how to get three months free at tryexpressvpn.com/space. That's t r y e x p r e s s v p n dot com/space for three months free with a one year package. Try expressvpn.com/space to learn more, and you'll find the link details in the show notes and on our website. Now. Back to the show.
1: Okay, we checked all four systems and came with a go. Space Nets.
0: Now, Fred, something you and I actually discussed not so long ago, uh, that the the time would come when astronomers would announce that they had discovered an exomoon. It's probably not a huge stretch when you consider that we've now found thousands of uh, exoplanets, that there would be moons orbiting some of them. Uh, if not most of them, uh, as is the case with our own
1: solar system. Uh, And it now appears that they may have found one. That's right. It actually is on the back of a story that we covered some months ago, uh, because what's happened is the initial speculative discovery has now been followed up by uh, observations with the Hubble Space Telescope, uh, which is... A much more accurate way of making these measurements. There is still some doubt, but I think the astronomers who are doing this work uh, believe that uh, the existence of a moon is the best way to uh, to to explain the observations that they see. So, uh, what are the observations? Well, uh, you, you and I have spoken many times about the Kepler spacecraft, which has discovered something like three thousand exoplanets by what's called the transit method, as the as the planet passes in front of the disk of its parent star. It causes a very slight dimming of the light of the parent star, and it's very slight, but it's not too slight to be um, to be measured. And so that's how the transit method is how many of these planets uh, have been discovered. So one in particular with the name of Kepler 1625 uh actually 1625b because the b refers to the planet 1625 is the star 1625b is the planet and it was behaving in a slightly odd way so y- you expect that you know as these uh as these uh, planets go around their parent star you're going to see repeated dips and i think it's Uh, something like, I think it's three uh, transits is the minimum that you have to detect in order for that to be counted as a planet, Uh, because otherwise it could be something else. Once you've seen three, you know for certain what the period is, that it's always going to be regular. Mm -hmm. Um, But this, uh, this particular one showed variation in, first of all, in exactly when these transits were taking place. And I think they also detected secondary dips as well, a little blip that is suggested to be a moon of this planet, um, 1625b. It's very different from anything we've got in our own solar system, though. And for, also, just to give you some scale on this, this uh, this object is about 8,000 light years away. So, okay. um, you know, you're looking at a star that's uh, a significant dif- distance from Earth but you can still detect the the, the dips in brightness so the uh, the best model that fits the observations to date is of a, a world the size of jupiter mm-hmm. um, but we know from other measurements that it's much more massive than jupiter apparently it's got something like 10 times the mass of jupiter and that is rather interesting because it almost pushes it into the territory of being a brown dwarf star um, um brown dwarfs are actually uh, defined as 13, I think it's 13 Jupiter masses. Uh, a brown dwarf star is an object that uh, has very low level nuclear reactions going on in its interior, and it only shines in the infrared region of the spectrum. It doesn't shine in visible light. So it's not very far short of being a brown dwarf, but it's it's under the limit, so it's a planet. But then uh, the observation suggests that it is orbited by an object the size of Neptune. Wow. So, you know, this is not a, a small moon like uh, Europa that we were just talking about, or our own moon, which are similar in size. It's uh, something the size of a decent planet in the solar system. Neptune's roughly four times the the diameter of the Earth. So um, very interesting, uh, yeah. and like anything we see in the solar system. And for that reason, uh, the authors of this work, uh, who are, are based at uh, Columbia University in New York, they they are speculating that this moon of uh, 1625b has been captured rather than formed in situ because it is so such an odd object you know it's so big um they i'm sure are keeping going with their observations to find uh, to find uh, further details about this, they've already had 40 hours of observation time on the Hubble telescope, which is brilliant. Uh, and by the way, the Hubble telescope's uh, sick at the moment; it's not functioning. It's in what we call safe mode, but we can talk about that later. Right. Uh, the um, yeah, the the uh, the the the, um, the observations they've got so far suggest that a, a model of a Neptune sized world is the best candidate for fitting the data. Mm, oh, yeah. they're called it, they, they're christening it a Neptmoon because it's the size of Neptune.
0: Oh, okay. But does it have an official name? I mean, if the star is 1625 and the planet is 1625b, what's the moon called? 1625b1. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, it's usually a small, you know, small Roman one, so the letter oh, I. Gotcha. Uh, they they are used to denote the, you know, the moons of, of other worlds. So right. the B is the planet and the 1 is the, is the moon. Mm.
0: Now, if, this is just speculative, if this planet turns out to be, and, and we know it's not, but let's assume for a moment it's a brown dwarf, then you've got a binary star system and 1625 planet- BI <laughs> becomes, or B1 becomes a planet.
1: Yeah, that's right. Exactly. So there you go. You can have a lot of fun that- with this. Well, you can, and I think you should be an author on their paper, actually, with a suggestion like that. <laughs> it's just pure speculation,
0: but it uh, it did cross my mind. It crossed my
1: mind, given the size of the thing. I mean, it's humongous. Yes, it is. Yeah, it's. it's yeah, it's remarkable. And, and um, that 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 size, of course, does also. You know, um, give you uh, uh, perhaps a good reason why it might have captured this object because it's a very massive planet. And if this thing's been whizzing around in an unstable orbit, then the mass of 1625b could easily have grabbed onto it and turned it into a moon.
0: Mm, okay. Well, uh, now that we've found one, I suppose um, they'll pull out all stops to see what else is out there. There's, there's uh- got to be
1: squillions of them. Yes, I think that's right. I think there will be many of them, um, and and in fact it excites astrobiologists as that because, you know, we we find uh, worlds that are. Um, uh, um, uh, probably it'd be possible to have life on because they're gas giants but if they've got moons around them then they might be the places where life life could uh, take hold yeah, uh, for the yeah. same reason we're looking at the moons in the solar system That's like, the same like
0: solar U- Ru- Ru- Europa which we were just like, discussing like yeah. Mm.
1: yeah, and just as a footnote um, Andrew because I'll probably forget to mention it later uh, the Hubble telescope is, has lost one of its gyros so the gyros are what allow the telescope to point in the right direction it's it, uh, I think it's got four which were operational after the last um, servicing mission in 2009 uh, one has failed and they brought another one online to try and um, bring the the, the the number up to three that's three is the, the number you need operating uh, for normal telescope work um, but the one that they brought up the new one that's not been used before they've run it up and it doesn't work oh. uh, they Problems with it, so they've they've basically put the telescope into safe mode to figure out what to do. In the in in extremis, it can operate with one gyro, but uh, it's a very slow process. It's a much more clunky process than it is with three. Mm. So at the moment, we're we're awaiting um, you know further results on that. No, I think they ought to replace it. Ah, no no way, unfortunately. You mean re- replace the telescope? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, with, indeed with, they are. But with another the, one, <laughs> the yeah, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the kind of you know the replacement, is being pushed further and further into the future. It's mm. uh, now I think 2021 is the scheduled launch date. It's a long way down the track.
0: Yeah, but we know why. They just they've got to get it right first time, or the thing must right. be a piece of junk, won't it? Mm. That's correct.
1: Exactly. Yeah.
0: All right. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Uh, Andrew Dunkley here, and Fred Watson there. Space Nuts. Lastly today, Fred, we uh, are going to tackle an audience question. And thank you to Paul Laviolette from Vancouver Island for supplying this question. I'm not going to read the whole thing because I don't uh, think there's enough hard drive on my computer to store that much information. <laughs> it's a big question. But um, we'll, we'll just sort of take parts of it, Paul, and, uh, and Fred will tackle it. Uh, I think we're going to do it in two parts. Now, uh, um, Paul is talking, Fred, about the big crunch. He says, in my mind, I can and see it coming but if it's closing in at us at 300,000 kilometers per, per second then we would not see it until it's here and we would still be looking up at outer space as a sort of a recording of how things were not knowing there's only 20 minutes left what on earth is he
1: talking about is he talking about <laughs> the implosion of the universe yes that's right the big crunch which was Certainly a very popular idea during the 1970s and 80s because we thought at that time that the gravitational pull of all the matter in the universe was enough uh, to stop the expansion of the universe and eventually turn it around and bring it back to a contraction so that eventually you get an opposite of the Big Bang, which is the Big Crunch. Actually... um, Brian Schmidt, uh, that well-known exponent of gravity and Nobel Prize winner, and now a vice-chancellor of uh, the Australian National University, <laughs> used to refer to the Big Crunch as the Gnab Gib, which is the Big Bang backwards. <laughs> backwards. Yeah, <laughs> I do like that. That's yeah, very good. Mm. So um it's a and it really interesting question. I mean, we we now no longer believe that the Big Crunch is a, physical possibility because the we know that the expansion of the universe is accelerating so it's more likely to be the big rip where space just starts being torn apart but um i put myself in the thinking sphere that paul raises and tried to imagine what the big crunch will be like and he's right you've got um you've got uh, objects hurtling towards you uh at very very high speeds um and uh And space contracting. The thing is, there are a number of things at play here. One of them is it's space itself that's contracting, not just stuff moving through space. So we would all, just before the big bang, sorry, the big crunch, we would be compressed into Um, you know, into very small volumes uh, such that we'd probably turn into individual neutron stars, each of us, because of the compression of space.
0: Yeah, well, I was going to say that we we wouldn't be around for the ultimate crunch.
1: No, we wouldn't, absolutely. We'd be wiped out long before. Long before, yeah, and probably may, maybe millions of years before, just by the by the changes in physical conditions. But if you kind of neglect all that and imagine what it would be like, um, all these objects coming towards you, you'd have galaxies whizzing towards you, and because it's um, a, a contracting motion, their light would be blue shifted. So um, they would be, you know, you would what you would see would be the light of a galaxy turned not just into a Blue light, or violet light, or even ultraviolet light, but they would all be radiating X rays and gamma rays uh, because of the blue shift, um, and these are, of course, all lethal radiations in, yes. in large quality, quantities. So that would just be another thing that would um, that would uh, crunch us up. Uh, but I take I do take um, Paul's point because. And and it it kind of had echoes in my mind. Uh, You probably know this as well, Andrew, but during the Second World War in the UK, when the V weapons were being launched on London, the V 2 rocket, which was the kind of the you know the forerunner of most of the rockets that we're familiar with today, uh, putting things into orbit and things of that sort, the V 2 rockets. Actually arrived before the sound of them arrived. Yes. Yes. Uh, now that really only—that's uh, because they're travelling at a supersonic speed. If you are uh, the person standing underneath it, uh, of course it's getting nearer to you all the time, so you do hear the noise just before it, it hits you. Uh, but for people standing some time away, yes, these things landed before the uh, before the the noise of it going through space got to you. Mm. Uh, I, I think we are. In the first situation, if you're looking at the big crunch, because the these galaxies will be getting closer and closer to you, the travel time is less, and so you you, you don't have to wait 20 minutes before you know you've been hit in the big in the big crunch. It gets to you right at the moment. Yeah. Uh, very interesting scenarios there. Mm.
0: And And uh, for the record I've seen a V2 rocket up close and personal. They have one at the Imperial War Museum in London and I saw yeah. it a few months ago while I was over there and uh, gee they're imposing. Uh, yeah. You can see where that technology has taken us but um, to think that uh, all of the exploration that we're capable of now and all the amazing discoveries we've made through rocket science uh, started with a, um, a lethal weapon like that. It's, uh, yeah, it's mind blowing really when you, when you consider it. Now, uh, we go to part two of Paul's question. Another thing that's popped uh, up in my head a few years ago is this. I'm sure that there is no such thing as pull, only push. If I pulled your car out of the ditch, the energy would go down the line, then inside the hook, and the hook would be pushing your car to get it back on the road. That's easy to see. but now what is pushing us down
1: onto the earth? Fred. <laughs> So yeah, so um, then Paul goes on to uh, expound a theory that has stuff pushing us down onto the earth uh, as the force of gravity. So there are a number of things to comment on here. The first is that um, it's not true that there's no such thing as pull. Uh, we, uh, you know, in the world of physics, you recognize tension as being um, a, a valid force just as much as compression is. And in fact, it doesn't, you know, you don't need um, to have a push uh, to, to get a pull. Uh, Things can be in tension um, with with no no issues, uh, but uh, the, the the nub of the matter is how we are pushed down onto the earth, uh, and the, the fact is we're not. I mean, Newton used to think of gravity as a force that existed between any two objects in the soul in the universe, and we that as a first step that is a pretty good model. Uh, so what that says is that the the force between ourselves and the earth uh, which is actually a tension uh, that's what's pulling us down to the surface of the earth didn't, we they, that- didn't they
0: prove it in an experiment recently in a vacuum where they put two pieces of material I can't remember what they were made of together very close together there was no influence whatsoever between the objects or anything in the vacuum and yet they
1: Attracted to that, each other. That, that's right. That's the Casimir force, yes. which I think we talked about in a in a recent episode. That's something a bit different from what I'm talking about. That's all about quantum particles. In oh yeah, in, that's, that's right. Yeah, yeah just dismiss part- that. Yeah, forget that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what we're talking about here is gravity. What what um, sort of pushes us or pulls us down to the surface of the earth? And it's neither. It's neither a push nor a pull. Uh, since the work of Einstein in 1915 we've known that the phenomenon of gravity is actually a distortion of space, uh, which is a lot less intuitive, but is actually uh, well and truly demonstrated by all kinds of experiments, uh, one of which I'll mention in a minute. Uh, But what's happening is as soon as you've got a a massive object, uh, any kind of object with mass, it would happen to us, but in a very small way. But imagine a planet uh, in space what the planet is doing is changing the shape of space. It's actually distorting the space around it, um, and we, because the shape of space is slightly different at your head from what it is at your feet, uh, that basically is what we feel as the pull of gravity. Uh, the, the the this distortion. Um, was first demonstrated by the way light uh, changes its direction when it passes close to a gravitating body. That was with the eclipse in 1919, observed by uh, Arthur Eddington and others. Uh, And that essentially demonstrated that... um, the the, the Sun, in fact, because it was during an eclipse, the Sun is the massive object, and you see the the light of the stars being slightly distorted uh, because they're passing close to the disk of the Sun. We now see that on a much larger scale with uh, a phenomenon called gravitational lensing. If you've got a cluster of galaxies and you look at distant galaxies beyond them, Uh, The images of the distant galaxies are distorted completely by the the bent space around the massive cluster. So um, gravitational distortion is well established. Uh, It doesn't need anything pulling. It doesn't need anything pushing. It's actually just the fact that space is a different shape uh, around us uh, that gives us that curious sensation of being pulled down for you and me at this moment onto our respective seats. Um, so we sort of, you know, we feel the, the, the distortion actually by the resistance of, well, in my particular case, it's the resistance uh, of the chair on my uh, nether regions, which I can feel uh, that's that's a pressure, but it's actually distortion of space that's causing it. Okay. That, that, I still, having I
0: still set- struggle to get my head around it because uh, gravity seems so complicated and... Um, i know we've talked about it many times but i still find it a confusing concept
1: yeah i i I think you're right we so what we understand really well is the kind of you know the effect of gravity we know we know how gravity works we know what it does we know that yes it distorts space it does all this gravitational lensing all the rest of it so we can see its effects but the reality is that at the fundamental physical level we still don't really know what's going on. And one of the problems with gravity is that there is no quantum theory of gravity. Uh, so like, you know, light and matter, we understand it in terms of quantum physics. And, and that all ties up very well and is very understandable. But gravity eludes that, uh, that sort of definition. We suspect that there may that gravitational fields might have an equivalent particle, which are called gravitons. But nobody's ever found a graviton, and there's no theory that explains how they work. So the best theory we've got for gravity is still relativity—the the distortion of space—and it works a treat. Mm. Um, you know, it's the, the most robust theory of things in the universe that we have. And in fact, most of the, theory, the thinking, you know, foundation of the you know foundation thinking of the way the universe works is based on relativity uh, with the theory of gravity. But as to what gravity actually is. Yeah, it's an open question. The jury's out.
0: Wow. Um, Well, I guess that's what makes your job so fascinating and interesting, Fred, is trying to figure all this stuff out. Keeps you awake at at
1: night. Yeah, it does. But I leave the figuring out to really clever people. <laughs> <laughs> and we just talk about it. Yeah, fair we enough. We just talk about it. That's right. That's what it's... Mm.
0: All right. Uh, Paul, thank you so much for your question. Really appreciate it. It certainly got us thinking, and I'm sure it's got a, a few other people thinking as well. And uh, thanks to everyone who sends in questions. We, we're we getting a lot, uh, and we're, we're trying to work our way through them and, and sort of pick out the... Um, the little pieces of gold that people come up with. Not to say that the questions aren't interesting as a whole, but uh, some are just sending us for a loop and we we like to talk about those. Uh, But, look, keep them coming and we'll we'll do our best to get to them all. Uh, And thank you, Fred. As always, it's been a great joy. It's been a great joy to talk to you too, Andrew. Thank you very much. We'll catch you next week. Uh, Fred Watson, astronomer in in charge. Astronomer at large. He used to be in charge. Now there's no one to be in charge of, so he's just at large. We'll catch you next week. We'll catch you next week as well here on Space Nuts.
1: Space Nuts. You've been listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher
0: or your favourite podcast distributor.
1: This has been another quality podcast production from sites.com.